This is Bonjour Chai, the modern day Haman edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, we learn about the proposed Bill 96 in Quebec and its implications for the Jewish community. And Alana interviews one of the biological children of the infamous Norman Barwin. How are you guys doing? Sleepy. <laughs> but good. Avi, I think you're doing better than everybody this morning. We, uh, for those of you who don't know, we are actually recording on a Purim morning um, today. Uh, it is Thursday morning. Uh, uh, Alana, you had a Purim spiel last night? I had a Purim spiel. I did not have anything to drink. I actually didn't even technically dress up, which someone candidly pointed out on my Instagram post, uh, because I, we did this Purim spiel with the Harold Green Jewish Theater in Toronto at Temple Sinai, which is a reform synagogue in North York. And it was five young emerging Jewish performers, and we each sang two numbers. And then we did a Purim spiel that was loosely based off of the story, but modernized. And so we were all dressed in, you know, like nice, formal hair. Um, and then I posted a picture of it on Instagram, and someone I know was like, you're not wearing any costumes. <laughs> this, is, this is not good. <laughs> but that was not up to me. So there's always a critic. That was my porn. But it was really fun. And I feel like I, I hadn't felt that high of getting off a, a stage and being in front of a live audience and coming home and feeling that energy in so long. That was the first time in literally two and a half years because of the pandemic. That's wonderful. It's so I'm so glad that you were able to do that. What's your Purim been like so far, David? Uh, well, last night my synagogue had a Zoom Purim spiel where they got together and watched the producers as their Purim spiel itself. Because I love the producers. Yeah, so the person in charge felt like that best resembled the spiel itself. And um, can we get your can we get your best uh, springtime for Hitler? All right, improv. Here we go. Lyrics. Improv. Springtime for Putin and Russia. Dun, 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 dun. I like it. Thank you. Bravo. So, I mean, we had all the stuff last night, but this morning, actually, uh, the synagogue has this uh, custom of doing the meal reading in the morning and then following it up with a, uh, an expanded breakfast. There, there's breakfast every morning at the synagogue for the minion people, uh, the minionaires, as they are uh, known. Um, but in order to fulfill the mitzvah, the commandment of having a poor, a festive poor meal, um, they pull out all the stops on this breakfast and we get the mishmash omelet with the salami in it. For those of you non-Montrealers who aren't aware of what a mishmash omelet is, it's really good. Nice. The Beans, Do you want to describe the potatoes, it? The salad. It's basically an omelet with uh, fried salami, like integrated well into that omelet and uh, mimosas and wine and stuff. So I'm actually on my third glass of wine um, right now. Uh, L'chaim to everybody. Yeah. Happy Purim. And uh, mm, yeah. I guess we, we need to catch up, but I don't so think I'm going to. <laughs> every time we mention the name Haman or you should take a shot, Avi. Yeah, I don't know. We shouldn't be stamping out Haman. We should be stamping out the names of the contemporary Hamans, the Simon Jolin Barrettes, the Norman Barwins of the world. And, um, you know, this is uh, how we should uh, be moving Purim into the contemporary world. That's that's how I approach it. Um, but Purim's been good. It feels good to be right, to be back in normal. We were all in person in synagogue yesterday. There was a good number of people. There was uh, a reading. Kids were in costume. Kids were there. It felt good. I uh, I wore a tight uh, green t-shirt and I was uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. Um, I thought that was kind of fun. Um, I didn't have the, the scruff that David uh, is currently wearing uh, on his face, but uh, it, it did the trick. Um, yeah, so, you know, Purim's been Can we Purim. also talk, can we just talk about your glasses today, Avi? Um, yeah, so these are my, uh, 
uh, I don't know, what would you call these, my glasses? Old man 80s glasses <laughs> you're wearing currently? Sure, sure. Okay. So these are actually a frame um, from Ultra um, known as the Goliath, and it's a, uh, a classic frame from the 70s and 80s. Uh, for those of you who are looking for a visual reference, these are the same glasses that um, The Weeknd wears um, when he was going through that phase for uh, for the videos, and uh, uh, the same glasses that you see on uh, in Ocean's 11 and 12 and 13 on, um, what's his name's character? Uh, Elliot Gould's character. Um, they're, a fa they're oversized, and uh, I had a few pairs of these from my friend Corey Shapiro, and uh, this is the fourth pair that I own of these and I finally decided hey I'll put a prescription in these and I'll walk around with them as glasses um they're a little much yeah but uh they're not for every day can you see through them they look pretty dark tinted so they have a tint um I can see pretty much fine through them um but uh yeah maybe we'll post a picture maybe we will we also had a bit of a feud before because our producer is wearing a shirt that looks very similar to Avi's except Avi doesn't think so they both have stripes and are colorful. Yes, so in that sense, they are both striped and colorful. Let's leave it at that. So... Bill 96 has been in the news again lately as it slowly but surely makes its way through the National Assembly in Quebec. For those of you non-Quebecers, Bill 96 is the overhaul of the French language laws in Quebec, and it seems like everyone here has an opinion about it. Um, but, you know, I don't know if this is a Jewish issue or not. I guess it depends on who you ask. Uh, one thing that does have many people concerned is its role in the future of rabbinic clergy in Quebec. Uh, so earlier this week, I did speak to one of the chairs of a rabbinic search committee, and we'll play that in just a bit. But I figured we'd take a minute and provide some more context. Have you guys, as former Montrealers, even heard about Bill 96? Have you heard anyone outside of Montreal discussing this? Only through you, to be honest. None of my family members have called me up about this one yet. I uh, I feel... David? Yeah, no, I speak to my parents all the time. It was on Bill 21 or Bill 96, because I tell them, you know what? I think it's time where you, as Anglo-Montrealers, have to pack your bags and leave and either head to Toronto or head to Calgary and live with me because soon all the Anglos will have to be forced into exile just like the Jews of past. So you're saying that it was justified that everyone left Montreal? Oh no, I'm not saying that any of it was justified. I'm just saying this is the logical way that it's it's working and that whether it's Bill 101, Bill 96, Bill 21, what is the future of the Anglo Jewish community in Montreal where I always just feel that they're getting squeezed more and more. Now, does anyone really outside Quebec care all that much? No, the greater population really doesn't understand these laws or know anything about these laws. And I think the rationale is as long as Quebec doesn't interfere in any federal jurisdiction, as long as they don't bother us out here in the West, uh, we could care less what they do inside. But Alberta d sort of has a hate on for Quebec all the time. Okay, let's take five steps back for people who don't live in <laughs> Quebec, which is probably a lot of listeners since this is a national podcast. Avi, can you explain what Bill 96 is? Yeah. So essentially it was introduced last year um, as an overhaul of the French language laws, which haven't been really examined or, you know, 
changed in any major way since probably about the 70s, since Bill 101. Um, it is wider in scope. It affects signage. It affects French being used in businesses. Um, the area that I care about a lot um, is, and what actually ends up focusing a lot on here um, for this uh, discussion today, is more about the schooling, right? So there's actually they're actually limiting access to CEGEPs. Um, they're going to put they're proposing to put a cap on uh, the amount of uh, students that they can have in English CEGEPs. Um, and, and for people who don't know what CGEPs are, do you want to explain that too? So you guys know what CGEP is. You should explain I'm what I'm so is. good at explaining it. I have to explain this like everywhere I go because I've lived in so many other places. So in Quebec, we don't have grade 12. And so instead of that, there's a two-year uh, program that's kind of like a college, except for it's mostly government funded. So it's basically free. Um, other than your books. And um, you have the option to really explore something that you want to explore. You could take like a general art. It's basically like a post high school, pre-university, two or three year program itself. It's very cheap. It's about like $100 a semester. And it's really, I think it was designed really for young 17, 18 and 19 year olds to sort of explore what they would potentially want to do in university. I loved it. I, I went to CGEP at Dawson College. It was a great way to sort of explore do i want to try this no it's very easy to meander about and and yeah without the cost without the cost of it's like of, wasting money on your bachelor degree that absolutely. you end up leaving so essentially they're going to limit access um they're proposing to limit access to sejeps they're um cutting funding which is a big issue that dawson was supposed to be um a major dawson expansion was supposed to be funded but they're not or they're they're saying that they're not so a lot of this is in the area there um but there's a clause that's going to eliminate um until now, there was a clause that allowed new immigrants to um, send their kids to a non-French school for three years and then to renew it. Um, and then uh, now, partially what's going to happen or, or what's the proposed amendment is that they are going to eliminate that uh, renewal period. So basically, any new immigrant is going to be allowed to send their kids to a non-French school for three years. Um, and then that's it. You just have to start sending your kids to a French school, um, you know, at that you know, at that point. And would that be an immigrant, like an international immigrant, or even someone from another province making residency in Quebec? No. So it's if you went to an English-speaking school in Canada, right, you're automatically exempted from sending your kids to French school. But anybody coming okay. in from, from a foreign country um, is going to have that issue. Um, and it's coming up right now with the idea that, like, any Ukrainian immigrants that are coming in are going to have to go to a French-speaking school. And, you know, say, oh, this is great. We're going to have more French speakers in Quebec. And other people are like, these people just went through a war, right? Why are you enforcing some other you know bizarreness on them let them just live and be human um but anyways right but is it really bizarreness when the majority of quebec population speaks french itself so the understanding is you know there's so many places you can move to in canada if you go that will be english right the one exception being quebec where if you do end up immigrating to that particular province it is expected and it's to the benefit of most immigrants that if you go there you should be fluent in french so avi can you tell us more about how this affects the Jewish community? Yeah. So, I mean, look, there are many people who don't think that this is a Jewish issue. This is purely an Anglo issue, um, but it's not particularly affecting the Jewish community. Aside from the fact that many Jews do identify as Anglos and do feel threatened by the bill as people like that, even though by now everybody's pretty much bilingual, right? There is something... Um, that is more particular in this specific case is that there are members in the community that think that this is going to seriously curtail the ability um, for the community to hire rabbis from elsewhere, right? As it stands now, we don't actually have a single Canadian rabbinical school. 
um, which means that Canadians who want to go study rabbinics outside of the ultra-Orthodox community end up studying elsewhere. Um, and oftentimes they don't come back. And if you look at the Canadian rabbinical landscape, particularly in Montreal, um, these are all non-Montrealers and or non-Canadians for the most part even. Uh, there are definitely some Toronto-based rabbis that are from Toronto. There are a couple of Toronto rabbis that are in Montreal. Um, I think I am the one of the only native-born Montrealers that is a rabbi operating as some sort of a rabbi in Montreal right now outside of the, like I said, ultra-Orthodox community. But that's like, you know, this is something that, you know, concerns people, especially now that we have three synagogues um, in Montreal that are currently looking for a rabbi. So what is the community advocating in any way to change this? Has there been any talk of a way to fix the problem or the potential problem if this goes through? Yeah, look, I mean, there hasn't been much. There have been in individuals and in some groups who were starting to advocate the government about this. I personally was told, um, and again, I don't know how accurate this is. Um, we should reach, we reached out to CJ. We didn't hear much uh, from them, but I was told that CJ asked if they could take over the portfolio and there hasn't seemed to have been much action since then, right? I personally get the sense that Again, this is my personal opinion that CJ would rather play nice with the government in order to lobby them for items on their agenda that they think are more important items, you know, laws against anti-Semitism and things like that, and that this isn't really an issue that is going to concern so many people within the Jewish community. And so it's better to just, you know, let it be. So, Avi, you know, all this talk about the laws and how, you know, to become a rabbi in Montreal really just I am curious, like, how hard is it to become a rabbi nowadays? I mean, it depends where you go. Um, there is a lot of rabbinical schools online these days, actually, and I know people that are going through them. But, you know, becoming a rabbi is anywhere from a three to five year process. Most rabbinical schools are much more on the five year track. It took me a little less time because I had a lot of the uh, learning beforehand. And plus, we weren't necessarily being trained as pulpit rabbis. So we weren't doing a lot of homiletics and a lot of pastoral care and pieces along those lines. It was mainly very focused on the legal aspects of becoming a rabbi, uh, like learning halakha, learning various other areas of Jewish law. Um, but most rabbinical schools are a four or five year track, and you go and you learn everything you need to know to be a great leader in the Jewish community. Um, what's interesting is that, and there are articles about this, that rabbis today are seeing other paths outside of the pulpit. So in addition to there being few rabbis available, you know, let's say for Canadian rabbinics or Montreal ones, because they might not want to come to Montreal, as we'll hear in the interview, um, we see that many other rabbis are saying to themselves, hey, I would rather just go and become the head of a Hillel or lead an organization or go do something uh, as an independent or go find an online organization, as we heard with Rabbi Saberman, and lead people in that way. And that fewer and fewer people are choosing the pulpit track on on a regular basis. Well, you you didn't you left the pulpit track too, so just saying. Well, I did and I didn't, right? Because I I don't think I would mind necessarily a pulpit position. Um, it's just there are fewer and far between in Montreal right now, although there are several that are available. Uh, the bigger barrier for me is that my wife is the superstar rabbi. And it, there are people that do this, but we realized at some point that um, two pulpits in one household was just not a very right. good idea. Just logistically, it was complicated. I like to joke that uh, having rabbinic ordination is like a genetic disease. It's okay if you're a carrier. You're just not supposed to marry another one. And uh, it, like, you know, we, we tried it. it. It just, it was, the logistics were too complicated. It was too much. And uh, I'm very happy being, you know, the Rebbitson in this, in the congregation that we're in now because of my wife. And I'm happy to do rabbinics on the side, but having a second pulpit was just, it, it was a headache and ultimately may not have been worth it. And uh, 
you know, we'd have to move, we'd have to figure out where else can we find two pulpits. I'm happy right. to not be in a pulpit. And by. I get it. I, I get the enticement of being in a non-traditional role, as many rabbis want to be. Um, but I also recognize the need and the value for pulpit rabbinics. So going going back to the French law, how does this actually affect rabbis coming in from other places? I guess because it would mostly affect their children. So you think that people would be deterred from coming because they would have to send their kids to a French school? Because in, in the synagogue themselves... No, because the synagogue is Anglophone, okay. right, often, right? At least the ones exactly. that they're looking at. They're going to be speaking yeah. in English. But mm-hmm. synagogues are often looking for a young family or a young couple or a young rabbi who may be married or may not be married. And oftentimes these people end up with children. We're not... Uh, I, I think that we've moved beyond this idea of like, will we hire a couple and we want a Rebetzin for a free salary because she's going to come with the rabbi. We're not, we're not looking at that. But oftentimes when you are looking at young rabbis, they are looking at people who uh, have young children. And then when you present them with this idea, right, hey, hey, uh, you're going to have to send your kids to a French school. That's interesting for some people, but other people are like, yeah, that's, I'd rather go somewhere else to another small community somewhere else and uh, do that instead of having to immerse myself in an entirely new culture. And then is there anything that the Jewish community can be doing right now to sort of find different avenues or ways to sort of encourage rabbis either from Montreal or abroad to bring them in, like new incentives, anything, price, costs? I don't know. I think there's any number of things that we can be brainstorming on. I'm sure you guys have ideas. Hey, let's figure out a way to bring new rabbis into a new community. There's probably all sorts of fun stuff that we can think of. I personally think uh, one solution can and maybe should be setting up a fund for students. Uh, you know, you're in your third year at McGill or Concordia and uh, you're, you know, you, you see a flyer and it says, or an ad online, who sees flyers anymore? Let's be honest. Um, you see an ad online about like, hey, uh, go learn at the rabbinical school of your choice. We will pay for you and uh, we'll give you a stipend provided you come back to Montreal and you act in rabbinic capacity. Much like the doctors, if you graduate from McGill Law, they sort of say, we'll pay for your what studies. If you go to train or go up north in northern Quebec, we'll pay for your education. Something like that is what you're suggesting. Yeah, I think that that works in a lot of cases. You know, there are oftentimes when new immigrants come to to Canada, they they have to go and work in a small community. There are doctors, and they they say, "Hey, you're going to become the, com- the the community doctor for this small community in Newfoundland or wherever you're going to be, uh, or up north." And young doctors go do this all the time. And there's a lot of financial incentives for them to be able to go and do this. And we should be able to say to young individuals in Montreal, "Come back here. You already." are a Montrealer, you don't, won't have to learn French. Um, and it's not just about incentivizing people who are foreign to come learn in this entire new world that we're in or the way that people perceive it, but to go and say, hey, you're Montrealers, you like it here, come back to Montreal, come be a rabbi. Or, you know, use it as a positive, come to Montreal, you can learn French, your family can be fully bilingual, and you can immerse yourself in this very European cosmopolitan city as a positive. Ideally, that's, I think, so much of what it is. But I, I you know, and I've, we, when we had uh, Pierre Till on, I spoke about this also. This was, you know, a much bigger approach. I, I spoke to a rabbi who told me that when he came to Montreal, uh, the entire uh, apparatus was that we're going to send somebody from the government to come and tutor you and anybody else in the office on your level of French. And it's paid for by the government. And it shows that we care about the language. And, and this bill essentially 
you know, and this is what why I think it's really important to talk about it on Purim because there are serious issues about Purim as well, right? What what happened in the Purim story? And I'm, I'm just riffing here, and, and but I think that this is important to be able to talk about. What happens in the Purim story is that you have Haman who feels disrespected, and so what does he do? Instead of saying, hey, let's make nice, I just want you to, you know, whatever, and recognize that he's being a dick, right, to Mordechai, um, he goes and he says, hey, let's go and destroy everybody because I'm angry, I'm going to push that anger out, right? That's what happens. That's what's ha happening with Putin. That's what's happening with any sort of like modern day villainy is somebody who feels hurt. And instead of saying, hey, what's going on here? Let's fix this. Let's eliminate any anger or let's figure out a way to, to do whatever it is I'm trying to do out of love. It's I, I feel hurt. I'm going to push back and I'm going to hate. And that's what's happening here with the French government. They could have easily gone and made this. We love French so much. Right? We want this to be something that everybody is part of. And instead, what happens is they just lash out and they say, we don't feel like French is enough here. We are going to go and punish people. You are going to have to do French. And, and that just pushes people away. And that's where I think the issue is here. And I think that we should be the ones stepping up and saying, hey, we love our country so much. We love our province so much. We want to be able to encourage people to stay here and to live here. But I, you know, I... I don't see that coming from the government. I don't see that happening anytime soon. And I think that it's the responsibility of the Jewish community to step that up and to internally go and say, Montreal Jews should be taking care of our, ourselves if nobody else is going to be taking care of it. And uh, we should figure out long-term solutions because, you know, we do need rabbis and we are going to have a rabbinic crisis in a, a little bit of time when we need more and more rabbis and fewer and fewer of them are going to want to come from outside of Montreal. So if my understanding is Bill 96 is like the Haman decree, Avi, you are Mordechai, Alana could be Esther. And does that make me Vashti? I'm just Harv I'm just Harvona. I'm the extra guy who's like pointing <laughs> out the important pieces, you know, in the corner because I'm he's my favorite character, right? He's the guy that's just like, "Hey, yeah, don't you remember there's that uh, there's that tree that you're going to the, the the gallows that you were going <laughs> to hang, right?" Harvona's just mentioned once and uh, like but he's got a he's got a good cameo. He's got a best supporting role for that. There are no small parts, only small actors. Well, how much taller? How tall are you? <laughs> I'm very short. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, let's get to this interview. Uh, Wendy Rapp is the co-chair of the Rabbinic Search Committee at Congregation Charzine Bethel in Montreal, and I spoke to her earlier this week. So I'm here with Wendy Rapps. Wendy, thank you so much uh, for being here. Welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you. You have been um, on multiple search committees for the Charzine Congregation in Montreal. Um, can you start by just telling us, like, what are... Uh, the concerns or what are the questions that candidates often ask you about moving to Montreal or to Quebec in general? Like being, what is it like to be a rabbi in Quebec? Well, um, the big question is obviously the language issue. Uh, some people are concerned. Others are, are far less concerned. We've had, um, we've really run the gamut on that. Some people, people don't even really understand all the ramifications of living here as an outsider or living here as an insider for that matter. Um, some don't understand or even ask the question about educating children. So we have to bring that up to them in an initial interview. We, once we get a sense of if we like the candidate enough to pursue this, we have to bring it up because if they have young school age children, we want them to know from the outset what they're going to be up against. And ideally we're looking for young candidates when you're looking for a rabbi, uh, you know, of, of a large congregation, because you want them to uh, to be here for a while. 
And so young children are often a factor. Yeah, the story goes that everybody's looking for a rabbi in their late 20s and 30s with 30 years of experience. So yes, we're <laughs> looking for somebody that we can grow with and they can grow with us. And of course, the young families, some are just starting out with infants. Others have children two, four, six, eight um, in age. And the education thing is a real it's sometimes a deal breaker. So you've had rabbi rabbinic candidates who you were interested in, you know, bringing to the next level of interviews or finalizing. And at some point they were like, we don't see ourselves ever wanting to educate our kids in this way or bringing them to Quebec. Well, we had an interesting story not long ago, perhaps in the last month, where a candidate, a native of Los Angeles, uh, applied to us. And in our initial interview, because there's a mini interview followed by a, a larger interview with the entire search committee, in our initial interview, he expressed a lot of trepidation about the French language, not so much for his six-month-old daughter, but for himself, because he didn't speak a word of French. So he was applying with a lot of apprehension. And what he decided to do after he passed our initial two interviews was to come visit Montreal with his wife to check it out. He wanted to see the signs, the signage. He wanted to see the downtown core. He really was scared for himself. And um, in the end, he, he loved Montreal and he was ready to take the plunge, but then he felt he wanted to be closer to grandparents and decided not to make the move. But that was an interesting one because it was more about him than it was about the future of his children. Yeah, um, I, I can see that in, there are people that's, that Montreal seems like a foreign country, you know, and not necessarily in a good way. There's a lot of people who come as tourists and they say, oh, it's like coming to, to Paris, but you, but it's still in North America. We hear all of these cliches as Montrealers, and we know that some parts are true and some parts are not, but for a lot of people, it can be nerve-wracking. I know, you know, my wife's American, and when she came here for a rabbinic position, it was tough having to deal with, you know, she would call me and, you know, the, she would tell me, Waze is saying Cote des Niges. What street is that one? And I'd be like, no, no, it's Cote de Neige, right? And and it takes some adjusting. And she took French in high school, but other people really have zero or they're coming from, from nothing. And it's, you know, even though it's geographically close to New York, it, there's, it's worlds apart for, in many ways. Um, so you imagine that there have been candidates that were not even potentially interested, um, that you, you may have wanted to see, but they were saying, I'm not even going to move to Montreal, I'm not even going to think about it. Um, and you've had candidates who ultimately moved away or not taken the next step because it's um, because of the language. This new Bill 96 um, that is removing this exemption, right, where it used to be that you could renew your English language uh, schooling for your kids every three years, um, it's going to get removed um, and you can get it once and you'll never be able to renew it again. Um, do you think that that's actually going to affect um, the types of rabbinical candidates that Montreal synagogues might be uh, attracting in the future? You know, I don't know if it's going to affect the number of candidates or the type of candidates we're going to get because they're just not educated. If it's an, if it's Americans, they're just not in, well informed on Bill 96 to start with. Sure. But let's say you're going to have a candidate who's going to come and is going to, you know, you lo they love the, the, the synagogue, you guys love them. And then you say, listen, hey, because you're not going to, you know, spring it on them once they've signed a contract. You say, listen, your kids are going to have to, you're going to be able to go to school at Salman Schechter next door to Charzion or wherever school they want for three years. But after that, they're going to have to switch to a French school. Yeah, I, I can see that being a, a real 
difficult situation and it's hard to gauge the number of candidates we don't get because we're in Montreal. It, this year we were fortunate we had nine applications for senior rabbi which was better than last year we had seven. Um, we So generally uh, the candidates are younger and then we had six um, applications for interim rabbis because once the senior rabbi position isn't filled we're allowed to move into the interim category which means we can get a rabbi for a one-year term. So when it's interim rabbis the subject is not even broached because generally an interim rabbi is 60 plus years old and he's doing this for you know uh, short stints in various cities but yeah definitely it's hard to gauge who we're not seeing there's no question about that. One of the things that I've noticed that it highlights, and you're a native Montrealer, I'm a native Montrealer, um, is that there is a distinct dearth of uh, rabbinic talent from Montreal that is in Montreal, or that is in terms just in terms of general homegrown talent, right? I think one of the carve outs of Bill 96, or one of the ideas behind it, is that we should be hiring more local people. Now, when it comes to engineers, when it comes to executives, one can imagine that because we have great universities, we're going to be able to hire a lot of these people. But when it comes to uh, clergy, it seems like we're not doing more, right? I don't know if that's something that you've ever thought about or noticed, but most of the rabbis in Montreal are not from Montreal, and that's probably true in a lot of other cities, um, but Montreal has this unique thing, and this is really highlighting it. I don't know if that um, has occurred to you in the past or not, or if you think that there's a way around that for the future. If we can hold our homegrown rabbis in Montreal, <laughs> I really don't. I know of a few who have left, some very talented young men who have left and uh, are currently in the States or in Toronto. It's tough. There's another issue out there. There are less and less... Um, rabbis graduating from the seminary. There are less and less. This year, I was told that there was a total of 10, whether they're Canadian, American, a total of 10 graduates. From JTS. From the, the... Yeah, from JTS. Okay. And so the pool is smaller and smaller. That in itself presents a, a, a tremendous problem. You know, what you're saying is really highlighting something very interesting in that we're no longer seeing this as a great career for our youth, right, to be going towards and encouraging them to be moving in that direction. Um, but then it asks the question of what is the nature of Jewish leadership if we are telling fewer and fewer of our young Jews to go and become rabbis? Um, what does that say and how can we shift that so that we actually have strong and vibrant synagogue life and rabbinic life um, you know, for the future in 10, 20, and 30 years from now, what are we going to do when there are fewer and fewer rabbis and even fewer of them want to come to Montreal? Um, but just in general in synagogues, what do you think we could or should be doing in that way? I think one thing that is changing is that we can no longer expect rabbis today to be on 24-7. I think um, we have to be a little more creative in our thinking and a little more open and um, allow for them to have some time in their own lives, in their personal lives. And I think one of the reasons less and less people are going into the rabbinate is because of the old school way of thinking, there's just not a free moment in your life when you're a rabbi. So today I'm, I'm starting to think that if we would approach it a little differently and be a little more lenient in what's expected of a rabbi in the course of a week, maybe we could encourage more people.
I, I hope so. So where do you guys stand now um, in terms of Char Zion? It's now March of 2022. Okay, so uh, we've been at this since November. And uh, what we have found is that we have um, closed the search for a senior full-time rabbi. Uh, we were unsuccessful, but we were fortunate enough to find an interim rabbi who will join us for a year. And we are just waiting for our board of directors to ratify um, that candidate. And then we'll be moving forward in that direction. Okay, so that's going to give you a year to find and to think about what your next person is going to be, uh, who your next wonderful uh, long-term rabbi, hopefully. Um, what do you think, given this situation, given the landscape post uh, Bill 96, if it passes, and um, the ability to have a young rabbi with yet with a young family, um, changes, what do you think you're going to do going forward, supposing you're still on the search committee for the next rabbi? Well, we're going to continue to fill out that application and sell ourselves in the best way possible. Charzine Bethel is still a very prestigious, prominent synagogue in Canada with 750 plus families, and it is attractive to some. Just on a side note, last year we had a candidate very young who, uh, from the States, when he was told that his children had to be educated in in French, he was thrilled. He was embracing that as, oh, wow, they're going to learn a new language. So and this is the, they weren't even looking for the exemption is what you're saying. They were absolutely excited by it. So maybe we need to find a few more of those out there and keep our fingers crossed and keep our search going. Are you going to look elsewhere outside of the two main American schools and maybe look towards Europe and other places because those uh, uh, European rabbis might have a uh, greater interest in sending their kids to a French school that that might make a difference or is that not on your radar at all? No, we we tried that this year. We advertised in the Jerusalem Post. Uh, we advertised in the Jewish Chronicle in the UK. We spoke to rabbis in Paris. We really did the gamut. We widened our net and we cast a wide net and we found that we were most fortunate working within the RA with the rabbinical assembly. Well, keep us posted. Um, Wendy Raps is the co-chair of the search committee at the Charzine Beth L in Montreal. Thank you for joining Bonjour High. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You can find links to what we spoke about in the show notes, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on the issue. You can email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca and let us know what you think. For many years, Norman Barwin was known as a well-respected Jewish fertility doctor based in Ottawa. He was even awarded the Order of Canada for his work. However, in the mid-90s, he was sued by a couple who discovered their children's DNA did not match the sperm donors they had selected. He waved it off at the time, but the evidence has continued to pile up over the years. We now know that Barwin artificially inseminated at least 83 patients using the wrong sperm and that 17 patients were inseminated with his own sperm. In 2019, Barwin was stripped of his medical license, and in 2021, the Ontario Superior Court approved a $13.375 million settlement against him. Here with us today is one of these so-called Barwin babies, Kat Palmer, who is also a friend of mine who I've known for many years. Kat, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. What an intro. What an intro. <laughs> So you really did do your research. I did a lot. I did a lot of research. I wanted to make sure I got this right. So there's a lot of details. It's a long case. Uh, I had to sift through so many different articles. 
Um, so first, let's just talk about about your part of the story. So how did you first find out that Dr. Barwin was your biological parent? So you kind of have to take it back a little bit before that. Uh, I figured out I was donor conceived when I was 14 in biology class because both of my parents have beautiful, beautiful blue eyes and I do not. Uh, and I found that really curious. So when I asked my mom about it, uh, she kind of spilled the beans and, and let me know that my parents had used a sperm donor who at the time uh, they believed to be German and Irish. Uh, and a med student who played the cello. So that was always a part of my identity. Uh, and really, I didn't uh, have any interest in knowing more than that until I had graduated from post-secondary. And mm -hmm. I became uh, very excited by this idea that I might have past siblings out there. Uh, and in order to try to figure out who these half siblings were, uh, I realized that I probably needed to figure out who the donor was. So that's when I took a DNA test. Uh, and thinking I was half German and Irish, and lo and behold, it came back Ashkenazi. <laughs> There's not really much surprise here. I know this is an audio recording, but when you look at me, it makes a lot of sense that I'm Ashkenazi. Yeah. And also for uh, the, those listening, like I knew Kat before and you were raised in an Ashkenazi family. So. Yes, correct. So go, go on, go on. That all kind of made a lot of sense to me. Uh, but I knew at that point that the samples had been switched. So it did take uh, quite a bit of digging and pushing uh, Dr. Garwin. But eventually what ended up happening is that I connected through uh, commercial DNA testing website with a cousin in New York who also happened to be related to Dr. Barwin. And that's how we really pieced together the family tree and, and figured out that it was in fact Dr. Barwin who used his own sample instead of this German and Irish sample that my parents thought they had picked. <laughs> right. And then in, in terms of the case itself and all of these years, I know because we have each other on Facebook and you would constantly <laughs> update with new information and new articles. So how involved were you in the actual settlement and pushing him to get to where we are now? <laughs> I don't know if this is the answer that you want. <laughs> Ooh, I'm not looking for any answer. Okay. For your answer. <laughs> My answer is that uh, for me, this was never about money, and I had yeah. very little interest in pursuing legal action against him. There are several other uh, groups of individuals involved with my case beyond my siblings who feel very differently. They very much want him held accountable. Um, what I, what my dream would have been is that this case would have gone on to the Supreme Court and legislation would have been passed because this case set the precedent. Um, there's obviously, this case has ballooned into over 200 people. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, needs to try to meet there and, and uh, things that, ways we're trying to keep people happy. So obviously having this settlement um, for a lot of these families, it's not, it's not gonna make up for any wrongdoings, but right. it will bring some sense of closure and some sense of, um, of vindication I don't know if that's quite the right word of just this thing has happened and you were wronged and here is a small monetary amount right um for me I'd much rather see legislation change because we like to focus on the actions of this one doctor uh because it's a really 
ridiculous story and it's very fascinating and there's plot twist but what's even more frightening is when you zoom out of this one individual and you realize one how many times this has happened uh, mm. across the world but also that the legislation specifically in Canada uh, has not made it uh, so that a doctor using his own sperm <laughs> that is not a criminal offense in Canada uh, if and and beyond that when I think of our friends who are starting to seek the help of fertility specialists because they want to have a baby. There's no laws protecting your own genetic materials once they leave your body. <laughs> so just going for a routine test, like a lot of these families did, we expect that doctor to operate under a certain moral code, but legally they are not required to do so. That's wild. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> so, so where does that leave you now? Are they just like, he lost his license and then he's just doing his thing and you just move on with your life. He lost like, are his you license, but he was already retired. So it, you know, right. it's a little too late for me that, that, that hearing really yeah. what that felt like to me was, was, uh, the Ontario college of surgeons and physicians trying to save their own hide. Um, up until that point, they really had never commented on the story. Uh, and furthermore, they had been responsible for investigating his practice. They had had several complaints in the past. They had other cases that had quietly settled. Uh, they knew there were issues, uh, but they never felt the need to update their checklist. Someone's going into this clinic and saying, you know, yeah, yeah, that's, that looks right. That looks right. That looks right. What was that checklist? That checklist is not sufficient. <laughs> right. So I'm really curious. You, you talked about your siblings and I I've seen you posting a lot about, especially uh, one of the relatives you discovered named Rebecca Dixon, that you became quite close. Yeah. I would, I'd love to hear what that was like <laughs> to reunite with all of these people who are your relatives that you didn't know existed. Reunite. I, I love that word because I never, I, I had never, we'd never been united. I never knew them. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Reun yeah, that's a good yeah. point. United. No, How did it feel? <laughs> it's funny because I think when I, when I, talk about the fertility industry and how, how frustrating it is for me. I get very bogged down in the seriousness of that. And then obviously talking about my siblings is uh, a very different tone. Uh, my siblings are pretty fantastic. They're the best thing to come out of this. Um, my sister, Rebecca in particular, uh, were very similar people. So we were both only children up until we found each other uh and and a really similar personality very willing to embrace anything that might come out of this and any new people uh that we might want to uh to add to our family so um becca i think right away it was just this <laughs> almost like um parent trap esque we're not twins but just I have this sister and she's really great and and we're so similar and how did I not have you before before now wow. right and it, the only thing that that that's frustrating for me is I could have I, I would have loved to have known her 
my entire life. I wish she had been there <laughs> because we are so close. And I, it was from day one, it was just like talking to a sibling that I had grown up with my entire life, <laughs> which I know is strange. And, and in the nature versus nurture debate, I'm sure there's a lot yeah. of nature, but we also grew up in Ottawa. We're both only children. We went to the same arts high school really? <laughs> in the music program so the nurture side has obviously influenced the nature but uh both very giggly and she's just ugh, she's the best <laughs> and so uh, Rebecca wasn't born into a Jewish family now that she knows her <laughs> blood roots has she expressed any interest in learning about her Jewish background at all <laughs> Or so any of your other siblings? Her mom, my other siblings, for sure. There's a couple of them that are very intrigued by it because for most of them um, who have grown up with very strong Irish identities or um, French Canadian or whatever the case might be, all of us have at some point walked into a shawarma place and had someone start speaking to us and assuming that we understand what they're saying or are you are you Italian? Are you Spanish? Are we? And so I think for a lot of them, it's explained um, what that missing piece is of just having um, a, a void between what you've been told about yourself and and how you present in the world and and the assumptions people make about you. Uh, a couple of my siblings have been super into researching. Uh, Jewish history in particular. <laughs> I have one brother who uh, is a writer, I will say that, <laughs> um, and uh, a very inquisitive mind, and he will send me articles on, on the history of Jews in Lithuania. <laughs> this is Love fascinating. That. Like, I yeah. grew up Jewish, and I don't know this information, so thank right. you. <laughs> but he is very interested in how that might have of uh affected him um when we all the trauma all the inherited trauma intergenerational trauma like how does this piece affect me right Mm -hmm. Uh, but my but becca grew up uh i believe she has jewish ancestry on her mother's side but she's quite involved in um in the church she's um very religious and uh it, it's been interesting, again, talking about Jewish identity for all of my siblings and what does that piece mean? Um, and when we get onto this idea, false idea that, you know, Judaism is just a religion, it's not an ethnicity. Well, here's this person who's ethnically Ashkenazi, but has a religion that doesn't match that. <laughs> and what does, what does that mean? What is that? And then also within my family, um, siblings who have been very confused about being able to claim Jewish identity because of the argument of being a patrilineal Jew, which to me doesn't make a difference. Um, But within our community, that is a big discussion. um, Totally. Unfortunately, yeah. And and just feeling like they can't claim that because they haven't grown up with that, right? Has there been any discoveries that you've made about your own, I guess, self-identity as a Jew, as a person from this experience? Like, have you had any positive or just like growth transformations because of this? Because I can't even imagine being in your shoes. It's it's impossible to for me to 
picture myself in that type of situation. It's like out of a movie. Yeah. I mean, there's just certain moments when I look back throughout my childhood that start making sense. Uh, Just like even in theater school, right? Um, I had one teacher who taught dialects and she she had this concept of blood dialect. So the very first dialect she would learn in theater school was one that was in your background because she felt very strongly that one, it would come very naturally. And two, there's certain postures and certain ways that certain dialects hold themselves and that enables the dialect to evolve more easily um, and more authentically. Uh, And I kept trying to do Irish and German accents and I could not do them to save my life. (laughs) The thing that came really easy were Eastern European, like New York Yiddish. (laughs) Um, And I I just remember thinking this teacher, completely writing off this teacher and just, she's crazy. This is a ridiculous theory. Obviously it's not true. And maybe I'm just horrible at accents. (laughs) And just certain things in my life that, have held meeting for sure. Um, I've always felt very connected to my Jewish identity. And again, that might be the nurture side of the argument, but I've always just been very passionate about, again, the Holocaust survivor grandparents, but learning about the Holocaust, or I make a point every year of trying to learn a, a new song in Yiddish, right? Just because I don't want that that culture and that history and that music to die I want it to keep going and live on and if it means that I'm learning it (laughs) 70 years later well why not (laughs) but I don't know how it's how it might have um reinforced my own identity or just it clicked it just didn't feel right to say oh yeah I'm Jewish but I'm German and Irish that didn't (laughs) Well, now you, and now you know it didn't make sense to me, yeah. <laughs> and it and it didn't make sense with with the assumptions people would make about me based on how mm. I look. <laughs> right. Whoa. There's so much there. Um, I have one last question for yeah, you. For um, what did it feel like to have your life so public? Because I know you know you you went to theater school just like I did, and there is an <laughs> element of um public versus private already of like being on stage and people like reading your bio but it's different when you're constantly doing interviews like this one for a really long time and people know suddenly know who you are yeah I mean it's also that's been strange for siblings who are coming on later down the line um yeah. you said well, I know there was team in your bio that's how many are officially involved in the class action uh yeah. since last publications but uh it's it's very strange to meet a sibling who has watched video clips of you and interviews about this topic, but I've never met them. I don't have a connection to them. Uh, and the other thing that was really strange when it first came out when in 2016, that initial story is that I had been living this for three, four years of actively looking and knowing it was Dr. Barwin and and oh I have this sister and this cousin in New York and what does this mean but I remember I was doing a show at the time the week that article came out and I just remember after the show in the lobby all of these people I had known coming up to me because they hadn't experienced the story the same way I had which was 
piece by piece by piece. They had learned the entire thing. And <laughs> when you're hit with that entire story, it's extremely overwhelming. <laughs> but I had learned it over time. <laughs> so it wasn't as shocking to me, but I just kept getting, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Is everything okay? Oh my God, are you okay? <laughs> but um, I don't know. I think for so long, my donor conceived identity was a secret and it was very shameful. Um, and it was, we don't talk, even with my dad, right? I, I didn't have that conversation with my dad until I was 18 and I was leaving for school. Okay. Um, it was very um, private. We kept it to ourselves. Um, I think a lot of my family knew, it seems like, knew that I was donor conceived, but we never talked about it. Um, and so in that way, I think it's been really healing in a lot of ways of just being able to be open and honest because it's a ridiculous thing, right? But then it's also strange to be um, starting a new job, for instance, a couple of years ago. And my poor boss was so confused because he was like, well, oh God. <laughs> well do, like, what, what did you do over New Year's? And I said, oh, well, I, went to, I went to spend some time on the island with my brother and, and spend some time with my niece. You know, oh, do you have a do you have a big family? Do you have any siblings? <laughs> Do you have any siblings is a routine instructory question. Right. And mm. I'm in this new job. I don't want to just share this <laughs> Actually, whole thing I about my personal siblings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it, so, you know, the, there's this hesitation of, well, I was raised as an only child. Well, you're talking about your siblings, but you were raised as an only child. What does that mean? <laughs> so it, it usually comes out as, it's a long story. You should Google me and come back with follow-up questions. <laughs> you have like a little handout you give them. It's like, here's the backstory. Well, I'm I happy. will answer questions later. I'm happy to talk about it. It's, uh, but it's, it's, I'm sure it's tiring. Interest. Yeah. Because people, the people are processing it. Whereas I've, <laughs> I've had yeah. the time. It's just my life. Right. It's not this crazy. It is a crazy story. And when it take a second that like a sibling, hang out sibling reunion to look around and realize how far I've come from being this only lonely child <laughs> to, to having so many siblings that I stress about remembering their names and their spouse's names and their children's names and nieces and nephews and how old is this one and <laughs> who, who now who's this now it's a lot <laughs> yeah but what a whirlwind crazy well, thank you so much for your time, Kat. Mm -hmm. It was really lovely to yeah. chat with you and see you. It's been a while. Oh, Wendy was asking about you the other day. Oh. She wanted, know. we had someone drop out of a little concert we were supposed to do. And she's like, is Alana here? And I was like, sadly, no. <laughs> that was uh, for everyone listening. We, we were in a Yiddish choir together. A Yom HaShoah Yiddish yeah. choir. That's very sweet. You can tell her that I say hi. I will. And I hope I will. we can talk again soon. Yeah, man. <laughs> now it's time the show where we get to our nachas that thing that makes us feel good about the past week alana what's your nachas been? so i uh was informed that our guest from last week abby roach is going to have a baby on instagram she posted in life news this healthy little lady will be joining our mini family in a few months and uh post a picture um, of the scan and uh, literal a little baby, little baby roach, a, li a, a little baby roach. Awesome. Yeah. Beautiful. So mazel tov, Abby. 
David, what's your nachas? My nachas goes to Jack, which stands for Jewish Adult Calgary. They ran a Purim soup-making event this week at the House of Jacob, the uh, Orthodox synagogue here in Calgary. The soup was being donated to uh, Jewish Family Services of Calgary for seniors and people in need. So I got to chop and uh, chop and cut lots of onions, and we made soup uh, together. It was great to be with a bunch of young Jews in Calgary, people that I had never met before. It was really nice to be live, local, and with people. What did you do with this soup? Well, I didn't eat it. We we chopped it up. We cooked it. And you give it out like to people? Or you just make soup for the sake of making soup? No, we gave it out to Jewish Family Services who will then gift it to people in need. Um, they talked about the importance, you know, people who, who love soup. Was there anybody like who went and said, soup for you, soup for you, as in... The opposite of no soup for you? No. No, there was no there was no soup Nazi <laughs> happening at this synagogue itself. It was people who were very pro soup and people who love to share the soup and give it away. Beautiful, beautiful. It's the anti soup Nazi, right? It's the antidote to the producers. Right, springtime for Hitler. This is our bookend. It's wonderful. <laughs> it all comes back. A- Avi, what, what about you, Avi? Um, I have a double nachos this week. I'm going to do two quick ones. Um, first of all, and I know that this is two weeks in a row, but she deserves it. Um, Hannah Sroor, right, uh, wrote a wonderful piece. Um, and it's not really about her, but she, uh, she wrote it. Um, but my nachas is for this beautiful picture that she discovered in the Shar Shemayim of Leonard Cohen as a little boy um, in his Purim spiel, um, dressed as a waiter with a little mustache painted on. Um, so that one gave me a little bit of nachas. It's really cute. You can read the article in the Jewish Review of Books. Um, you should absolutely go check that out. It's wonderful. Um, that's a cute little piece from Hannah Sroor about Leonard Cohen um, and Purim. Um, but um, Purim in years past was always a nightmare of going to deliver Mishloach Manot. It's not a nightmare. It's a wonderful, fun thing to go deliver Mishloach Manot. But once your kids get older and every kid wants to give to the, like their classmates, and I want to get to this one, I want to get to that one, um, it starts becoming difficult. Um, all of you who do this and go deliver Mishloach Manot should go and look online for route mapping software. You can type in like 20 addresses and then it'll just give you the ideal route between all of them so clearly like ups and amazon and everybody's been using this for years but i have co-opted it for mishloach manot deliveries and it has made my day so much better um so that is my other piece of nachas go use technology to make your jewish life easier and more wonderful Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of March 18th, Parashat Sav. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. 